But we're going to continue our Beatitudes series. And uh, Christy spoke an amazing uh, message last week about blessed are the poor in spirit. And remember, she had those two jars, the jar that was full of water that had nothing, it couldn't take anymore. And then there was the jar that was the empty jar that was completely ready to receive. And that picture of that that poor in spirit, that jar that's completely empty, ready to receive what God has. That's the picture of what Jesus wants for our life, not to fill ourselves up and be so full of ourselves that we don't think that we need anything, but actually be ready to receive what God has for us. Well, that leads on to the next line that Jesus has to say. So we're going to read the first couple of lines from that Beatitudes again this morning. So it's in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to start from verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, we're talking about this concept that Jesus keeps introducing called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. And this is an interesting one, um, concept which we're going to revisit again later on. But this is our verse for the day. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He goes on, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We're going to be talking about this line, blessed are those who mourn. It's not a feel-good service, is it, today? It's not a happy, clappy service. We're talking about something that's quite serious. Blessed are those who mourn. And to be honest with you, as I was looking at it, I'm like, it's kind of an oxymoron, really, isn't it? Blessed are those who mourn. It's like we are talking about the happiness a few weeks ago. Happy are those who are sad. It doesn't quite make sense to us, does it? How can I be happy by being sad? I can't imagine any self-help books being great sellers that are all about mourning. Can you imagine how many books like How to Mourn Like a Pro? I, I just, it's just, they're not going to fly off the shelves, are they? Or a movie about mourning. It's not going to work. It's not something that we'd be interested in talking about or learning about mourning. And when I'm talking about mourning, I'm, this is what I'm not talking about, okay? Just so we can clear the air all together. Mourning is not when, you know, you're at a cafe and you're... You've got that lovely flat white and you've enjoyed it and you're just kind of making it last. So you've got that last little sip left in the cup and you're just nursing it and just enjoying it. And the waiter comes along and whip, takes it away. (laughs) That's not the sort of morning I'm talking about. And I'm not talking about the sort of morning when, you know, your team is just having an awesome game and it's doing so great. Three-quarter time, they're on top by... 20 points, they're doing great. And then all of a sudden in the fourth quarter, they just completely lose the plot. They forget what the coach told them to do. And in the, in the end, the final hooter blows and they've lost by a goal. That's not the sort of morning that I'm talking about today. I'm not even talking about the sort of morning that goes on when you drop your iPhone or your Samsung Galaxy and it cracks. That's not the sort of morning I'm, t- I'm talking about. These are all first world problems. You know what I'm talking about? These are temporary light afflictions. I'm talking about something that's a little bit more serious than that. I'm talking about sin. So I'm going to 
bring mourning and sin together in one wonderful combination. So you guys are in for a, a barrel of laughs today as we talk about this thing called sin, this concept called sin. So often in the world when we talk about our problems, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's usually something external from us that's a problem, right? We have a problem with the government. We have a problem with Donald Trump. We have a problem with class warfare. We have a problem with that guy in front of me in the traffic. We have a problem with whatever is outside of me. But we often neglect to look at actually what's inside of me. It's the things that are inside of me that are actually the real problems that we so often don't want to face up to, we don't want to deal with. But this idea of sin is one thing that unfortunately for us, whether we're Christians or not, we have to at some point acknowledge and get to a point of facing up to. And this is what Jesus is wanting us to deal with. So I'm going to talk about sin today and we're going to use an example from the Old Testament. Um, and the story that you're probably quite familiar with, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. But it's the story of King David and Bathsheba. And if you want to read about it, it's a great story. And it's so funny when you, when you read Bible stories, there are no punches pulled. It's really out there in all its gory detail. And so we read about the story of David and Bathsheba and we discover his sin. And David, unfortunately, goes on a, on a journey of his sinfulness the, the one redeeming thing that we can take from this story, it is a cautionary tale. It is something that we can learn from. So I want us to learn something from David. So the story goes that David is, uh, it says at the beginning of this story that it was springtime and it was the time of year when kings go away to do battle. But David decided that he wasn't going to go away to battle like he usually did. He was going to stay home at his palace and take it easy. He was going to kick back and enjoy himself. He, he was going to have some me time. And so he, he did that. And it says that one day he was walking along the palace walls. And, and just so you know that uh, Jerusalem is on the top of a hill. And on the top of that city hill was his palace. So he looked down upon everything else and everybody else. And he was walking along his, his palace uh, rooftop one day. And he, was, he glanced down and he sees a lady. She's bathing. She's washing herself and says that she's extremely beautiful. And David, in a, a fit of passion, suddenly decides to himself, this is David, king of Israel, who has many wives already and concubines as well. He could have any woman that he wanted, but he decided that he had to have that woman. And he says, tell me who this woman is. And very soon he discovers that this woman, Bathsheba, is already married to Uriah the Hittite, who is one of his soldiers, one of his his key soldiers. But he brushes that fact aside. He takes Bathsheba. He brings her up to the palace. He sleeps with her. And he sends her on away. And he thinks to himself, got away with it. Perfect crime. Awesome. Except for four weeks later, he gets a text message <laughs> from Bathsheba. Just says two words. I'm pregnant. 
emoji face with you know, the screaming one with the blue at the top. <laughs> so now what happens? It's suddenly was the perfect crime. It's out in the open now and he has a choice to make. He's at a crossroads. What's he going to do? If he confesses that he was the one responsible, then he has to endure. He knows that it's a crime to sleep with another man's wife. In fact, the law said that it's punishable by death. He knows there are consequences if he owns up to what he's done. He has to endure the scandal. Or perhaps I could figure out a way of covering this up. And that's what he does. He thinks about how he can make it seem like this never happened. And so what he does, Uriah is away at war where he's supposed to be. He, he sends a messenger to bring Uriah back. And he has this um, subterfuge where he says, look, I want to talk to Uriah all about how the war's going. And so they sit down and they, ha- they have a chat. And he asks Uriah a bunch of questions about how the battle's going. And when it's all over, David says, you done good. you done great, Uriah. Go home, sleep with your wife, and uh, you can go back to the battle tomorrow. But Uriah, being the good man that he is, just decides, he says to David, there's no way I could do that. You told me many a time that I should never have sex with my wife while we're at battle. I know we shouldn't do that. And so he refuses to go back to his wife. David's like furious inside. So he thinks of another plan and he sends, so Uriah goes back, he sends for Uriah one more time and he says, Uriah, come back, we'll have a meal together, we'll chat, we'll hang out, I just love our times together. So they, they hang out, they have a meal, he just keeps pouring, keeps topping up Uriah's cup with wine, more wine, more wine, this is a great night, we're having fun, aren't we? He gets Uriah drunk, he says, Uriah, go back to your wife. In the morning, he discovers that Uriah didn't go back to his wife, but he fell asleep outside the palace doors again. Even though he was drunk, refused to to disobey the order that he knew, that, that while he was at battle, he shouldn't be sleeping with his wife. David was getting frustrated and furious. I bet he was thinking to himself, it's going to be only a matter of time before people start to notice that Bathsheba's pregnant. So he does what we all do when we sin. He takes it up a notch. He, he goes one step further, one step too far. And this is what happens when we sin. So he, what, what he does is he, he calls on his, his captain of his army. His name's Joab. Joab's not a good guy. Joab is known for compromise. Joab's done a few murders himself. So he says to Job, this is what we're going to do. When the battle is at its hottest, you're battling against this, this city. I want you to suddenly withdraw and leave Uriah out there on his own. And then he's, he's just going to die and it's not going to be anybody's fault. It's going to be the enemy that kills him. And sure enough, that's what they do. And Uriah dies in the battle. David hears the news. He pretends to be upset about it. And then the next day, he says to Bathsheba, you can come and live in the palace now, and everything's hunky-dory. It's like the perfect crime. They have their baby, and the baby starts to grow up, and David thinks that he's got away with the perfect crime. 
until one day when Nathan the prophet comes up to him. We don't really know in the story whether Nathan hears a prophetic word from God of it was just like the worst kept secret in the palace that Nathan just finally knew that he had to say something about this. And, and Nathan finally, who is, is Nathan, uh, David's prophet, Nathan finally confronts uh, King David about this sin. And at this point is when David finally confesses to what he's done. In the ons- I can't really go into all the story, but in the ensuing story, God forgives David for that incredibly bad series of decisions. But there were consequences that he had to face. But out of that today, what I want us to do is discover and learn about the way that sin operates in our lives. Now, if you don't sin, then obviously this message is not for you. And, um, but, but clearly, you'd be levitating off the ground, and, and I can't see anyone levitating in the room right now. So obviously, this is a universal thing that we all need to face up to at some point in our lives. It may make you uncomfortable, and I think that's okay. A little bit of discomfort's not a bad thing. So the first thing that I think happens when we sin, so I'm not talking about before we sin, we've already done the deed, the first thing that happens is that our conscience speaks. And anyone who says to me that they can't hear the voice of God, you're lying. Because God speaks really clearly through the Holy Spirit and your conscience tells you almost immediately that you've done the wrong thing, that you've sinned. It's like a little whisper. Sometimes, and I'm, I hate to, to sound like a pro here, but sometimes it's almost like there's a gong, that someone's hit a gong deep down inside you and you can feel the reverberations of this gong inside you. You know something's rebelling, something's not right, and you know that you've done wrong. Sometimes it's not a voice inside, sometimes it's a little voice on the outside might be your spouse. It might be, my, my kids are awesome at helping one another know about their sin. They'll tell each other straight away what they've done wrong. But this voice speaks. And we have the choice at that point to decide, are we going to listen to that? Or are we going to bury it? And that brings me to the next step, which is denial. Denial is not a river in Egypt Denial is something that we do in order to, let me put it this way, we're basking in the afterglow of our sin. We're still enjoying it at this point. It's still kind of nice and the conscience has come to us and we have a choice at that point. And denial is one of the things that we can reach for out of our repertoire of defense tools to make it seem like, uh uh-uh. Either one of two things. We deny that it ever happened. You know, what's the things that politicians always say? Deny, deny, deny. This never happened and we'll try and whitewash it. Or we deny that it is even sin. It's not even sin. It's, it's just my innate behavior. It's my human behavior. I can't deny that. It's not lust. I just have a strong sex drive. It's testosterone. It's not gluttony. 
It's genetics. It's forcing me to eat and drink more than I need. I'm hyperglycemic right now. Give me a break. It's not gossip. I'm just interested to know what the group dynamics are going on around about me. I'm curious about this. I'm, cu- I'm naive. I'm a little lamb skipping through the woods. I don't understand what's going on here. Help me understand. The next step that we get to, this is where it gets a little bit more serious. Once we have denied it, the next step is hardening of the heart. Hardening of the heart. The Holy Spirit loves you so much. And He will use many different ways and He will speak to you many, many times about your need to change. But what happens? We get so annoyed with that voice. We get so frustrated with hearing that over and over and over again. What happens eventually is we build a wall of resistance. And what it requires is a hardening of our shell. We require us to build a wall, something tougher, something harder, that's going to resist that voice that keeps coming at us over and over again. And so we harden our heart. Our conscience becomes so hard that we can't hear the voice of God speaking to us anymore. And this is what happened to David. He had become so hardened in his heart and so refusing to believe that he had sinned. And what it does to us is that it opens us up. We harden, we shut the door to the voice of God in our life. It opens the door, unfortunately, to deeper levels of sin in our life. And you know, when you open the door to sin, we walk into a room that's got all these other doorways to it. And so we can walk into newer levels of sin, deeper levels of sin in our life. And this is what David did. What started out as adultery led him down a garden path, a slippery slope that became an act of murder. It's incredible what happens, unfortunately, when we harden our hearts. But that is actually what the next step is. The next step that leads us to is what I'm I'm labeling shame. Shame, depression. So we have refused to accept that it's sin. Consciously, up here in our heads, we invent all sorts of stories, all sorts of explanations for why it's not sin. But something more deep, much deeper than that, deep down in our soul, deep down in our bodies even, something is rebelling. Something is not right. And that leads to certain behaviors which are dysfunctional. We'll feel sad. We'll feel depressed. We won't be at ease. It comes out because we start snapping at people. We're angry. We don't sleep well at night anymore. We're not comfortable. Our relationships are breaking down. Things are not going right. And this is the process that we need to, I guess, acknowledge that we're starting to get depressed, we're starting to not feel comfortable. And it's interesting to me that David wrote a psalm all about this, and it's Psalm 32. And I'm just going to read part of it. He said, When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away. 
and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. I don't know if you've ever experienced those sort of things before, but I know that I have. I know that I've realized something's not right, and it's a symptom of our unwillingness to face up to what really is sin in our life. Now, there's one more little sneaky step before I get to my final step. There's a sneaky step here that happens when we, we do realize that it's sin. We do realize that we've done something wrong, but we don't want to face up to acknowledging that final point of, of mourning that Jesus was talking about. So in order to refuse that, we say to ourselves, okay, I've done wrong, so I've got to make amends. I've got to fix this. Anyone relate to me right now? I'm going to fix this problem. And so we do all sorts of things. Sometimes we do it consciously. Sometimes it's an unconscious behavior. Because I've done this person wrong, I'm going to go around doing good things. I'm going to do good deeds. And, and somehow we think to ourselves, if I do enough good deeds, that's going to cover up the sin. But nothing can cover up the sin. There is no amount of good works and good efforts that you can do that's going to cover up the sin, that's going to, to blot out or remove that stain. And so we go through a cycle of sin and guilt, sin and guilt, sin and guilt. And we can't get away from this sin. We can't remove it from our lives. And the only thing that's going to finally set you free is this final point, this final step that we need to take. And this is what Jesus was talking about. It's the stage of mourning over our sin. Mourning over a sin, actually coming to that realization that it's, it is what it is. It's sin. I've stuffed up. I've messed up. I've done wrong. And I need to bring it to God. I need to confess this as sin. I'm going to read the rest of, or some of the rest of that same psalm. He says in verse 5, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you. I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgive me. All my guilt is gone. It's so crazy. He, David's journey, what led him to confess his sin, actually brought him this release brought him this freedom. Oh, finally. Finally, I feel good. And this is where this oxymoron of being happy to be sad comes in. That when I confess my sin to God, it brings me comfort. Finally, this burden that I've been carrying all this time, trying to fix it, trying to resolve it. You know, the only way of finding that comfort, the only way of finding that release is giving it back to Him completely. 